Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. It is Monday, November 7th. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. And if I have my calendar right, John, I think the election's coming up. How many more days? I don't know. I, don't, I love the AP advisory that went out. They said bulletin, election day tomorrow, United States of America. Yes. We know it. We know. We've had it on the calendar for a while. All right, so here we are. I, I want to start with how we're ending this. Uh, Hillary Clinton's got a big uh, big closing rally yeah. in um, in Pennsylvania. It was real rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> Bruce and Bon Jovi. Yeah, Bruce, Springsteen, Bon Jovi. I mean, the, the, this, this celebrity uh, uh, star-studded end of this campaign for Hillary Clinton, we've talked about it, the Beyonce, uh, Jay-Z, uh, the, the political celebrities, the president, the first lady – Bernie Sanders, uh, really something else. Now, remind me uh, the celebrity list over at the uh, the Trump campaign, Rick. Uh, I believe uh, Chachi was been. No, I don't been, know. If he's, he I don't, I don't think he's been out since no. the convention. No, no, it's serious. Uh, wow. Okay, Joe Piscopo. Joe I, Piscopo, I, good, good friend. What actually? I, 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 I go on his I go on his radio program. Uh, Pretty pretty regularly, good man. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 not quite the star power. But you know, the, the flip side of that is that's how Hillary gets crowds, and she is certainly getting crowds at the end. And and Trump gets crowds on his own, and Trump sure does. Has, sure you does. Know, so uh, so I don't know if those if those celebrities actually mean much. I don't know what the final rallies mean, but I do know somebody that can help us answer this question. We are joined now here on the penultimate powerhouse politics podcast by the great. The great Nate Silver of Five Thirty Eight. Nate, how are you? Good. How are you guys? Well, we're doing. We're, we're a little. We're a little punch junk. I mean, it's. Uh, it's been a long <laughs> campaign. Tomorrow, or uh, taking the day off, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're gonna long lunches. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, let, let me just start before we get to where the heck this race stands. What, what, what's your take on this? I mean, we see the. the uh, I don't know of anybody that has done the surrogate game, certainly in the closing, better than Hillary Clinton. I mean. Absolute star-studded, both political stars, pop culture stars, music, Hollywood, uh, and Trump. I don't know of anybody who's done it less. Does that stuff matter? Um, I mean, every vote matters. Potentially, is a cliched thing to even, say. Even I Beyonce's mean, vote matters, right? <laughs> even Beyonce's vote matters. Yeah. yeah. Um, look, she can kind of be in multiple places at once more effectively. Um, you know, I think sometimes the Clinton campaign has played a lot in uh, Florida, North Carolina, uh, uh, Nevada, states with early voting, for example, where you can hopefully get people from your rally to go to the polls directly. Um, but uh, but sure, it's an advantage, and it's kind of part and parcel of how Trump is kind of a man out for himself and is certainly not a traditional Republican nominee um, and lacks some of the advantages that a traditional nominee would have, you know. With that said, um, he's only three or four points down, and uh, and that's not bad for <laughs> for doing so many things not by the book. So let's let's get the bottom line of where the the race stands. As you you basically have this as you are projecting a Hillary Clinton win, pretty pretty uh, wide margin in the electoral college. Uh, but you are saying that there still is a, a, a measurable and not insignificant chance of an upset. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, look, any forecast has two parts, which is you have, number one, you have the bullseye of the forecast, and number two is how wide do you draw the rings around it, right? Um, so I think we're drawing the bullseye in the same place that most other people are drawing it, which is somewhere around 300 electoral votes. If every state went according to our forecast to be a little higher than that, 320 
or something. Um, but, you know, she is roughly tied with Trump in Florida and North Carolina. Um, we had those turning just a fractional shade of blue because it's all probabilistic based on the polls uh, this afternoon, but ties for all intents and purposes. Um, New Hampshire, she seems to have emerged perhaps with a lead of a couple of points. But the point is that, you know, it's the kind of map that you would expect if a candidate has a three or four point lead and actually doesn't perform all that well in the Midwest. It's not the supercharged map you had for Obama, where even though he had a smaller lead in national polls, every swing state you looked, uh, including Iowa and Ohio and states where Clinton is behind, um, Obama was leading almost every poll. And so, um, so her coalition, while interesting the Democrats' future, it doesn't make for as safe an electoral college map as uh, as Obama's did four years ago. So when you come down to it, is the doubt in your modeling based on the fact that all of the polls themselves have uh, are, are just so close, and there's and there's doubt built into them, or is it that the dartboard is on the wrong wall that we're not even close to we're not even aiming at the right target because there's something systemically off about the polls? Well, I mean, um, we don't know until after the polls are conducted whether there's something off about them, but we do know that, number one, there have been various high-profile polling errors around the world. People talk about Brexit, but actually the U.K. general election was a bigger polling error, about six points. Um, And we know that in the last two U.S. elections, the polls were a little bit off. In 2014, Republicans were really lowballed by the polls by about three or four points on average. In 2012, um, President Obama was lowballed. Uh, by by three points or so in the swing state polls. So if you had a three or four point polling error, when you're looking at data, you have to look at it and say, what happens if I take this number and across the board add a plus three to either candidate? Well, if you do that for Clinton, then all of a sudden she's winning an Obama 2008-style victory where she probably flips some states like Arizona and maybe Georgia, and that's a very impressive-looking map, and that's a scenario within play. Subtract three points, all of a sudden she's losing Florida, and North Carolina. Um, Pennsylvania is on a razor's edge. Michigan, she has maybe a one-point lead. Colorado on the razor's edge. So, you know, um, so we saw how close the map got in September, say, in September where Clinton had a very bad sequence of events. She kind of um, had the health scare at 9-11 and whatever else. And we saw all of a sudden Colorado wasn't holding, at least to public polls. Their internal polls might say differently. Pennsylvania wasn't holding um, by more than a point or two. And so, you know, um, so if there's a polling error, Clinton's not far ahead enough um, to have a great plan B in the event of a polling error. With that said, she and not Trump seems to have the late momentum and polls that are out today. So what is Nate Silver's X factor? If you could answer one question about the electorate, even in just in a couple of states or nationwide, what is that question that's gnawing at you? Do you say, wow, I just wish we could figure this out before we get actual results? I mean, to some extent, we aren't trying to look for <laughs> X factors because we're trying to look for things that are measurable, right? But, you know, I mean, certainly I think that, um, um, uh you know, do we understand yet how to measure early voting and what those data really mean, right? Lots of people are looking at it, but um, but how do we put that in context? What's a good number? What's a bad number when there are different traditions in different states about whether you vote early? And different laws. Not. The laws change every time, and too. different laws in different states, and they change. And so it's kind of a moving target. Um, clearly, based on both the early voting data and the demographics of Nevada, that's a state where, um, 
you know, our model has Nevada 54% for Clinton. Um, so basically a toss-up or not far from it. You know, I'd bet on the 54% there. But, but there can be cherry-picking and, um, and wishful thinking of sorts. You know, I think, frankly, before you had some pretty good polls come out for Clinton today, um, you know, in the post-Comey 2 period, she had, again, a lot of polls showing a close race. And I think Democrats, like anyone else, will say, well, look at the polls, and the polls are favorable. And when the polls tell a mixed story, and we've never said the polls have had Clinton behind, but certainly there have been times at various points in the campaign where um, where her lead was tenuous. Um, you know, that's what people are like, oh, but people will turn out and vote early. I mean, sometimes it's true. Um, and Obama did beat his polls in 2012, and that's important. But, you know, Democrats also told themselves some of the same stories in 2014, for instance. But it, but if there's one known unknown that you would like to know, I would think it would be, what's the Hispanic turnout? If you knew what the Hispanic turnout is, you would be able to project with much greater certainty, wouldn't you? I would say I want to know what the African-American turnout is. Okay. Um, because I think we know the Hispanic turnout is going to be high. What do you think um, it's going to be? What, what, definitely... what, what percent do we think it's going to be? I mean, I think it'll be a couple more percentage points than <laughs> than whatever it was. I mean, there are different ways to measure this. And there are disputes right. about what the gold standard is for, for what percentage figure that you look at. Right. Um, you know, it could come more in states where the Hispanic vote is not traditionally activated, such as Texas and Arizona. I mean, if, if there are these polls, and they're a couple weeks old, but the sequence of polls for Clinton was only down by five points in Texas, you don't get there without um, without doing really well among among Hispanic voters and moreover turning out new Hispanic voters and in Texas counties along the Mexican border, you've already had early voting turnout that matched the entire turnout in 2012. Um, but Hispanics by and large are not concentrated in swing states. About half the population of Hispanics in the U.S. is in um, California or Texas. Um, right. Therefore, the winning coalition Democrats need to win, Wisconsin, uh, not Wisconsin as much, but Michigan and Pennsylvania in particular, and certainly Ohio, um, depends on very high black turnout, uh, along with winning some union working class white voters. Um, and Trump's not going to get very many African-American votes, but if you don't see the kind of monumental turnout that you had for Obama, then that's how Clinton could <clears throat> could lose a Pennsylvania or a Michigan, for instance. So, Nate, you've, you've been uh, very active on Twitter recently, warring with some different folks. Well, what's the, what's the thing that bugs you the most about what, what the critics are saying about your modeling? You've been the gold standard for so long. You have the great track record, and you built this, this model. It seems like there's a lot of people second-guessing. What's, what's bugging you when, you when you check your Twitter feed these hours? I mean, you know, I think uh, <clears throat> whenever people have a model that doesn't pass the common sense test, I mean, there's no way that – Obama, excuse me, Clinton is a 98% favorite <laughs> or 99% Huff, favorite Post to win the election. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, and that's just bad design. And I do this for a living, and, like, there are lots of debatable assumptions, but there are some things where you come back and I'm like, no, you flunked the project. You can't possibly have built, you know, it's like basically saying you're serving a steak and it's a piece of chicken, right? And you're like, it might be a good piece of chicken, right? Maybe my guests will be happy, but, you know, there's no way that you can construct a model given the error that we've seen repeatedly in polling and put Clinton at 98 or 99%. We could debate 60% versus 80% versus 88% or whatever else, but, yeah. And the frustrating thing is our model says Clinton's probably going to win. You know, she's now almost a 70% favorite, so 
she'll probably win. <laughs> you know, so be like, oh, see, we were right. And then if they, um, and then the, you know, one time in three when there's an error, then they'll say, oh, it was just a fluky circumstance. It doesn't really prove anything. I mean, we've made a lot of forecasts over the years, including some that have gone wrong enough that we've actually are able to kind of test um, how accurate our predictions have been historically. And we're very good at saying when we say something is 70% and you make that forecast 100 times, then it happens about 70% of the time and fails to happen 30% of the time. Um, and so we spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. And, you know, I just think it's um, it probably sends the wrong message to voters and to people following the campaign when it's based on, you know, I think not very careful modeling practices. And, and you're usually a pretty soft-spoken guy, but uh, but 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 I, I get the sense that uh, some of this stuff can really irritate you. Well, look, when people take unfair shots at us, then I my view is that I'm not going to respond as though you're acting in good faith. I'm going to make it very clear that um, that you know you're trolling and you're not trying to be fair. This guy Ryan Grimm from the Huffington Post, you know. Um, not a very ethical journalist, didn't try and, and call us for a comment, deliberately manipulated stuff, a lot of things that are untrue. And so I have no tolerance for that, um, and I let a lot of things go. But if I come at you, um, then I'm going to come at you hard. And that's just, you know, I think how one has to defend one's reputation when someone else casts a low blow is to let the world know that it's a low blow, and I can get down and, um, and expose that to people. Last thing for me, Nate, you look at these campaigns, and are you able to – divine from the external things that we all see and we all cover, what kind of data they're working with? And is there anything in particular that stands out about the use of data in this election cycle from either campaign? I mean, I think the later that you get in the campaign, the less likely anything is to be a bluff, if that makes sense, right? Right. Um, You know, early on campaigns might be exploring strategies. They might be trying to feint and say, hey, we're happy to play in Georgia if the other campaign will play in Georgia, too. Um, but, you know, you can make inferences that um, that the campaigns don't think Colorado is as competitive as the public polls say, right? Um, they could be wrong, but that's a clear inference from the campaign's behavior. I don't think Virginia is really as competitive um, as the polls might say, for instance. Um, you know, the fact that Clinton is now playing in Arizona – and not in Georgia, even if it's just a little bit, you know, that's telling potentially too. Um, you know, I think campaigns can also get overly ambitious, and and I'm kind of a lowercase c conservative guy about how do you play the Electoral College, and I say you want to make sure that you have a few good paths to 270 and not worry about, about how you get to 340 or 350. Um, and so if I were if I were Clinton, you know, maybe I would have been more conservative about making sure I defended Virginia and Colorado, even though they have good demographics for me. Um, but yeah, you know, you can learn, you can learn a, a little bit certainly from where the candidates are and where they're where they're spending money. So both sides, well, well, I should say, let me clarify: uh, the Clinton campaign and the RNC, not the Trump campaign, but 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 both sides have uh, this, you know, voter modeling. And they have uh, they, they they tell us you know every registered voter in America in their database, and they have assigned scores to them one to one hundred about how like how they're likely to vote, how likely they are to vote for for uh, for, for their candidate, um, and they say they've got multiple inputs. You know they start with 
you know, demographics uh, within in, in, in a lot of the states where they've got a lot of activity. They've got a lot of actual voter contacts and actual information. They've actually knocked on these people's doors and they've kept track of it. They've got voting, uh, you know, past voting uh, uh, history. How accurate do you think the stuff that these campaigns have is? I mean, they do they know do they have a good idea that, you know, based on all the information they've had and theoretically in some of these states like Florida, they know a heck of a lot about each person that has voted, or at least that's what they tell us. Uh, do they know who's going to win? Um, I think they think they do because I think they have less problem reaching voters. I mean, that's a big problem in polling, right? Um, if it was just a matter of, of the undecided to make up their mind, well, there actually are a lot of undecideds this year. That's one reason why Clinton doesn't have it um, in the bag, by the way. Um, but uh, but, you know, they're able to reach and infer the vote from a much higher percentage of the population. I think the campaigns would say that some of the swings you see in public polls um, are artifacts of who the polls are able to reach and not people actually changing their minds. So um, so in theory, that keeps the campaigns more even keeled. You know, we have a model based on public polls and it reflects the public polls really well. And the public polls oscillate a lot this year. People can go back and say how much of that was real change um, and how much of that was um, was not noise per se, because noise means something different in the context of polling. But how much much of it was was non-response is the is a technical term. Yeah, because they've got they've got the it's big data. They they've they've for some of these people they they go and knock on the door. They they claim to even be looking at social media with some of the inputs here. Uh, it's a it, it's a little big brotherish to me, and and, and, <laughs> and it's hard to it's hard to tell how much. You know, from my perspective, uh, we go and 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 talk to the, uh, you know, talk to the data people on each side about this. How much of it is? How much of it's real? How much of it is snake oil? Uh, the, the the Romney team actually talked up a pretty good game in 2012, and it's clear that they were basically completely blind um, on what was going on. But uh, you know, now the Republicans claim they learned a lesson from that, and they're they've kind of copied the the, the Democrats. But uh, but I guess we'll find out tomorrow, Nate. That's the fun of it. We will find out tomorrow, although it's important to remember that um, that it is only one election, too, right? You can build the most elaborate model in the world, whether it's the Clinton campaign's model or I don't know if Trump has a model, but um, but I'm sure they have something or our model. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, if one thing is a little bit off, I mean, you know, we also have to talk about the fact that there was a late-breaking news story here, which is the Comey sending the second letter, which um, said, I'm not sure what we were looking at in the first place, and I don't know if that plays a role, but remember, I mean – News events can move the polls by a half a point or a point or so. So that might be one reason why Clinton overperforms. At, at the same time, I'm not trying to scare people um, who wouldn't <laughs> want to see Trump win, but people should remember that in Brexit, it was about a four-point polling error, and also there was a view at the end that um, that it was definitely going to be Remain, that it had been close, but that Remain had momentum at the end. And, and sometimes... At the end of a campaign, the public polling gets funny because pollsters are trying to uh, not publish outliers and cover themselves in case they had a result that seemed weird before. And so, you know, there are campaigns where there's momentum and the polls show a little bit of momentum and then all of a sudden, bang, Clinton wins by seven on Election Day. And there are campaigns where the next to last poll is more accurate than the very last poll because you get hurting, as we call it, at the end. All right, Nate Silver with 538. We'll be talking to you tomorrow. We'll be on set with you tomorrow. Looking forward to it. Cool. Thank you, guys. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, Rick, we've got a 
pretty interesting guest. We're going to take a quick break, but we've got a pretty interesting guest coming up. I mean, this one of the one of the world absolute dominant figures in his in his uh, line of work. And he might actually be better at chess than Nate Silver. I'm not sure. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Gary Kasparov in just a minute. Hey, this is ABC's Dan Harris. I hope you're enjoying John Carl's podcast. I got a recommendation for an even better one. It's my podcast. It's called 10% Happier. I'm just kidding. It's not better than John's podcast. John's superior to me in every possible way. But if you want to hear more from ABC News folks, you can listen to my podcast, 10% Happier, or lots of other ABC News podcasts if you go to abcnewspodcast.com or to the Apple Podcast Store. All right, we're joined now by Gary Kasparov, the Babe Ruth of chess writer, political activist, and author of Winter is Coming, Why Vladimir Putin and the Enemies of Freedom Must Be Stopped. Paperback is out just coincidentally tomorrow. I love it. Election what timing? Day. What timing? Uh, Mr. Kasparov, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So what is Putin doing on Election Day? What, what, how do you think he's watching our, our little uh, democratic exercise here in the United States? I wouldn't call it a little. I think it's an ultimate democratic exercise, and that's why Putin thought that disrupting this democratic exercise could be the greatest prize of all for KGB Lieutenant Colonel. Um, from certain point of his rule, um, as every dictator, Putin had no choice but to sort of replace economy with propaganda, and he was looking for confrontation all over the world uh, to cover up uh, the total failure of, of his domestic agenda. Um, and, of course, uh, aiming at the United States, defying uh, the, the most powerful country in the world, defying U.S. president, uh, could be um, most important for uh, Putin's uh, attempts to um, reinvent himself as the sort of Iron Fist leader, an invincible leader um, who uh, can solve any problem anywhere in the world and who is not, was not afraid of anybody. So what is Putin's game here? Is he trying to simply undermine confidence in the U.S. electoral system, undermine confidence in American democracy, or is he actually trying to get Donald Trump elected president? I think both. Um, obviously, Putin wanted to disrupt the electoral process here to send a message back to Russia and also to the rest of the world that uh, democracy is always a charade. So elections always rigged. And so let's not complain about uh, so-called elections in Russia or in other uh, uh, non-democratic countries. But uh, at one point, probably Putin thought that he could have a good chance of electing Donald Trump or helping Donald Trump to be elected, since uh, Trump looked as an ideal counterpart for Putin's geopolitical agenda. Uh, the Trump's uh, ideas uh, about the uh, rest of the world, uh, they are very much aligned with Putin's vision of bringing the world back to the 19th or, uh, or beginning of 20th century, where big guys, superpowers could talk about uh, uh, all the arrangements and other countries uh, had no ch no other choice but to follow. Um, and uh, uh, when you look at uh, Putin's actions um, throughout this this, uh, this, this period, uh, it was quite apparent for me that uh, they put uh, the entire sort of machine, KGB machine, the network of agents and lobbyists, uh, and of course hackers, to make sure that Trump uh, will have a good shot on presidency. 
And do you have a read on Trump's side of this? Clearly, he's got a history with business interests and associates of his with business interests. Uh, we know that he's been briefed on uh, apparent Russian uh, meddling and, and hacking attempts and seems to be defending them or defending the possibility that it's not Putin and the Russians behind it. Do you think he knows what's going on and is okay with it, or is he kind of a rube here? Obviously, we have to speculate since we have no proof uh, uh, um, of, of his direct engagement with the Russians. But uh, there's enough, in my view, consequential evidence to suspect him of, of uh, being engaged with, with um, Putin. Uh, one is I'm troubled by Trump's refusal to um, release his tax returns uh, because uh, in 2008, uh, he was uh, saved from bankruptcy by influx of foreign money, and um, we have good reasons to, to uh, uh, suggest that the money, most of this money came from Russian, Russian oligarchs. Also, Trump was in Moscow in 2013, and uh, knowing his habits, uh, um, I doubt that he changed his um, uh, sexual behavior in Moscow, and that could give a KGB an opportunity to record a, a, a full motion movie. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, also, I, I think that um, Trump, uh, Trump's uh, vision of the world uh, could uh, help Putin to uh, push his agenda, since Trump uh, has um, no idea about, about the way uh, you know, the, the global security system has been functioning. And Putin's goal uh, was to destroy all the security institutions. And uh, it's not, it's not uh, a coincidence um, that... Uh, uh, NATO allies, especially in Eastern Europe, they're freaking out, uh, thinking about Trump, uh, you know, being commander in chief. Mr. Kasparov, I think you, you just dropped a doozy here on the the, the suggestion of a, of a of a full length movie. Is there proof that this movie exists? I know there's been rumors for a long time, but what what do we think actually happens? I, uh, look, uh, we're not in the court of law, so we you <laughs> it's know, a podcast. We don't right? have to, we, we, we don't have to work on the presumption of, of innocence. I guess in politics, you know, it works the other way around. Uh, so, um, but you know, uh, Trump. Uh, when you when we when we look at all his statements, he is not famous for for being consistent. But there's only one area where Trump has never changed uh, uh, his statements. It was about Putin and about Putin's uh, engagement in uh, or Putin's involvement in in uh, um, uh, U.S. electoral process. Trump was even uh, ready to undermine his running mate, Mike Pence who suggested that, you know, Russia was meddling in U.S. elections. And uh, when you start, you know, bringing, you know, one, one, one element to another, it's like, you know, bringing uh, all these bricks that, was, that, 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 that uh, spread around, um, you have a picture that, you know, might suggest that uh, um, all support, you know, given, given by, by, by Russian, Russian hackers and by Russian propaganda machine to Trump uh, probably is based on, on some kind of, you know, hard evidence that is, is, is not yet available. Uh, there are there is enough of um, uh, smoking guns to Trump Putin uh, connections to uh, form a firing squad for treason. And what do you think is at stake here? I mean, what 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 would mean what would it mean if if, if Trump were elected in terms of of in terms of the American example around the world, Russian uh, U.S. relations, Putin's power? What what's at stake? No, first. 
of all, I mean, the, very, the fact that this Trump, uh, Trump was nominated um, by the Republican Party uh, was a huge opportunity missed to have a proper debate about failures of Obama foreign policy. And Hillary Clinton was, you know, part of that at uh, the, uh, the first four years of Obama's presidency. Um, so this debate is, is, is always negative, and, it's, uh, and uh, Democrats now, they didn't have to uh, do anything else but to run their campaign on Trump, on Trump uh, um, uh, uh, character uh, flaws. Um, electing Trump, which I think is highly likely at this point, uh, you, wait, I mean, you think it's you think it's highly? Did you say highly likely or highly un- unlikely? Unlikely. 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 Uh, it will be a great triumph for Putin because uh, it will uh, uh, bring a new player to the world stage. Again, the man in the Oval Office is still the most powerful um, uh, political figure, but. Uh, um, at the time when America needs to so, to recover its credibility being lost over over uh, last years, uh, Trump will um, move in the opposite direction because his his plans to uh, uh, not abandon but definitely to weaken all alliances and to start you know direct negotiations with Putin, with Chinese, with everybody else, in my view, will symbolize you know the end of the world order. Uh, that has been functioning since the, uh, since uh, World War II, the end of the World War II, and uh, I can hardly predict the consequences. But it's very clear that uh, Trump will fail in his agenda, both domestically and internationally. It's it's I'm you know I'm laughing when I'm hearing him talking about bringing jobs back. Uh, these jobs are lost, and I think he knows it. And uh, the problem you know with Trump is that people like him, you know, if they fail, they'll just look for uh, for uh, um, somebody to blame, and uh, I don't want U.S. Uh, republic and constitution to be tested uh, by somebody um, who could use these uh, immense powers of of um, uh, Oval Office um, uh, to uh, undermine it. And what about a, a President Hillary Clinton? We, we 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 famously remember the attempted Russian reset when she was Secretary of State. What does she inherit, and does she have to confront Putin over his role in this election as part of the geopolitical game going forward, or does she do they have to pretend like this didn't happen and engage in the very complicated negotiations that always will attune between the the Russia U.S. relationship? Uh- the best thing I can say about Hillary Clinton that we know exactly how bad she is. So they, I don't think we'll have any surprises, and uh, and uh, all the, all her wrongdoings they're quite transparent now. So I think if she wants to um, to leave her mark uh, in U.S. history, she will have to work on restoring the credibility of U.S. presidency. And obviously, uh, she she knows enough about Russia and about reset and about Putin and about international politics to recognize that as long as Putin you know, has um, um, is given a free ride, uh, there will be no solutions found in the Middle East, in Europe, elsewhere. So confronting Putin will be number one item in her agenda if she's serious and if she's willing to sort of recover the the damage made by the previous administration. So uh, before you go, I, I want to ask you, I, I, I recall you played a, a chess world championship in New York back in 1990. Uh, what, 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 oh, in 1990, I played two matches, yes, two, in 1995, yes. But in New York, in, in, in New York in 1990 against Karpov, your, 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 yeah. your, your famous yeah. kind of Stalinist nem- nemesis, yeah. Um, yeah. 
that that was that was the height that was the height of Donald Trump's tabloid time. That was the Marla Maples era, his affair with her. Did you have any awareness of the name Donald Trump when you were here in New York for that uh, for that championship? Oh, uh, actually, no, I was I was aware about Donald Trump because I have been visiting U.S. quite regularly since uh, February 1988, and uh, 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 in 1989, you know, I. I, th- I think I stayed in Plaza, or uh, and I probably you know I dined with some of the friends in Plaza, and at that time it was owned by by Trump and Ivanka Trump, and it's and it's the the, the stories about Trump's first bankruptcies they were all over the place. So that's why you know I I can recall uh, the stories, but I mean the last thing I could rem- uh, could could imagine that one day this man will be running for the president of the United States. Unbelievable, huh? Absolutely unbelievable. Well, uh, Gary Kasparov, uh, uh, truly an honor to, to, to talk to you. Uh, really appreciate uh, all, uh, taking time to talk to us, and we'll talk to you when the selection's over. Thank you. All right, thank, thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, and that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Thank you for listening. This show was produced by Robin Gratis and Ryan Kessler. David Ryan, I think, helped out a little bit, too, although I haven't seen him around today. For Rick Klein, I'm Jonathan Carl. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you. What? what? One more time? Let's do it again tomorrow. One more time.